not but three hours after receiving the keys to our home here in Texas, a locksmith was at my home. Now, that's not because there is anything wrong with the keys or the locks. It's because though it was my home now, it had been someone else's home before. And I didn't know who had the key. And so I asked a locksmith to come and change the keys to the home because I wanted to feel safe. And I wanted the key. And I wanted control over who had the key. I was reading this week, scholar Stafford Wright, in his essay on the book of Ecclesiastes, writes this. He says, the writer is examining the meaning of life by turning it over and over in his hands so that we see it from every angle. And he forces us to admit that it is vanity, emptiness, futility, yet not in the sense that it's not worth living. He uses the term vanity to describe something vastly greater than that. All life is vanity in this sense, that it is unable to give it to give us the keys to itself. The book of Ecclesiastes is the record of a search for the key to life. It is an endeavor to give a meaning to life, to see it as a whole. And there is no key under the sun. Life has lost the key to itself. If you want the key, you have to go to the locksmith who made the lock. God holds the key of all unknown, and he will not give it to you. We've said that Ecclesiastes is fit words, but they're not final words. We've said that the wisdom of Ecclesiastes is not incorrect. It is simply incomplete. It is nevertheless instructive. What happens when you feel unsafe? You start taking all sorts of measures to secure your surroundings and control your world. The text this morning is all about the ways that you and I play God to control our world, to, to try and wrestle back the key from the locksmith. And so it's an invitation to consider, once more, a recurring theme of wisdom and folly. Turn with me, if you would, to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We'll read just verses 8 through 14. As you've kind of seen from this point to the rest of the book, we're taking snapshots of various chapters just to cover various themes that the writer to Ecclesiastes covers. 
So Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 8 through 14. Stand if you would as we hear God's word read. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Help us, Father. Help us hear you and see you and know you. Because no one has loved us like you have. And no one has sought us like you have. So as we draw near to you this day, speak. For your people are listening. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated if you would. I wanted the keys to the lock to be mine because I want to be in control of the world that I'm in. Over and over in wisdom literature in the Bible, you're given two opposing ways of being. On the one hand, you have the wise. On the other hand, you have the fool. This echoes for us what Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, right? Where the wise man is like the one who builds his house upon the rock. And when the storm comes, it won't be moved. The foolish one is the one who builds his house on the sand. And when the storm comes and it blows and it howls, so goes his house. Now, in Ecclesiastes and in Proverbs and in Job and some of the other wisdom literature of the Bible, pride is often associated with the posture of the foolish. Humility is associated with the posture of the wise. I want to look at three ways that people try and play God. You have to understand that 
The writer in Ecclesiastes, the writer in Ecclesiastes is writing under the sun, right? Simply Earth's reporter. And has gone to test out all the things that are here on earth, all the things, all the pleasures, all the, all the, uh, all the, and all the enjoyment, all the wisdom, everything that can be tested out, he's tested them. And as I said a couple weeks ago, this isn't like, um, it's not like a, uh, a, a grammar school lesson where he is simply handing you things to be memorized and regurgitated. Koheleth is a seminar leader. He's, he's goading you with questions. And you think you have an answer and he goads you with another question. And then you think you have that figured out and he nudges you yet still with another question. Because you and I both know that for adults to learn, the most powerful learning mechanism for adults is when we discover something ourselves, right? It's much more effective for me as a teacher if I ask you a question and you come up with the answer rather than me just tell you the answer. All sorts of ways, beloved, that we are foolish and that we play God, that we try and bring our circumstances and our world into our control. The first one is through impatience. Look at verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. Now, he's not talking about, uh, he's not talking about end of life, right? He's talking about the final product. Better is the final product than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Okay? So there are a lot of ways that impatience, uh, we use impatience as a way to control our world, right? It can be because we are, uh, we are simply uh, out of time, and we need something to, to happen. It can be because we desire results of something. Or it can be because we desire relief from something. Right? Think about it when, you are, uh, when you're stressed, when you're uh, behind schedule. Are you a pleasant person to be around? No, you're not. I'll just go ahead. See, I didn't do that right. I asked you the question. I was supposed to let you come up with the answer. But I was impatient because you're not a nice person and neither am I. Um, so that's one example of ways that we become impatient, right? And there's all the silly examples we can give, like traffic is terrible, construction is terrible. You can be impatient going down the road. But typically speaking, those things don't have a lot of relational impacts. There's also the sense in which we're impatient because we need results. We need something to happen. We need someone to get something or do something or be something or become something. And we don't have time to wait for them to do that. And so we become impatient with them. And so words like, why can't you just, comes into our conversations. Ever said one of those before? Or do you even listen to me? 
saying that rhetorically. I'm not, it's not an accusation. And so with all sorts of relationships, whether it be with coworkers or neighbors, distant family or close family, spouses or children, We become impatient because we are looking for results. We're looking for something to happen. We're looking for something to change. Why? Well, hold on to that. The last thing is we grow impatient because we need relief. We need relief, right? Whether it is because there's some sort of of pressure in our life. It could be an illness. It could be a strain, It could be uncertainty. And so we grow impatient with these things. We don't like the discomfort. This is the wound of Eden, right? We were made for a world where we did not know uncertainty. We were made for a world where we did not know uncertainty, yet we live in a world where uncertainty is the very essence of our day in and day out life. And so one of the ways that we try to cope with and control our world is to become impatient and it's manipulative because we're trying to change something or someone to meet our needs at that moment. Why? Because... We don't actually trust or believe that God is good and listening to us and hearing us and working in and among all of us. And so frankly, we feel like if we were running the show, we would do it better. And you say, no, 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 I don't think that. I think God is a great God, and I don't want that job. Yes, you do. You do want that job. You just don't want his kingdom. You want your kingdom. You don't want his job where he has to be in charge of all the everything. You just want the job where you're in charge of you. Right? And it's not good. It's not good. It actually leads to destruction. It leads to, um, it, it leads to unhappiness. It, it leads to terrible things, right? Your family members become more projects than people. Your coworkers are more inconveniences than image bearers. The world in which you live is not something to to rejoice in and be grateful for, but something that simply cramps your style and inhibits your agenda. And the problem is, the problem is there's a seep. All that thinking gets down deep in your heart. And all of a sudden, God is the one that's in your way. God is the way, God is the one that's more an impediment than your Lord. It transfers then to what we see in verse 9, right? In verse 9, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. So the anger in verse 9 is, um, is extreme disappointment 
and exasperation at the perplexities of life. So as we've said before, when we've talked about anger in other places that it shows up in Scripture, we have made a distinction, right? There's a difference between a a moment of heightened emotion versus the type of anger that the Bible is warning us about here. The, The type of anger that the Bible is warning us about here is the anger that is the smoldering anger. You saw that in verse 9, the anger that lodges where? It lodges in the heart. In the Hebrew, the heart is the place that controls your thoughts, your emotions, your deep desires, and your choices. And so if anger is what is lodged down there deep in the, uh, in the substructure of your, of your being, what's guiding you now? Is love for others guiding you? Is gratitude for the world that God has made and the opportunities that God has given you to live in his world, is that what's guiding you at that moment? No, what happens is when anger is what drops down beneath the surface and gets down deep in your heart, and that's the thing that's smoldering, that's the fuel source inside of you that's keeping you going, Now, all of a sudden, you're a much different person, aren't you? And we use anger, why? We use anger to control. Right? When a dog, when a dog acts aggressive, is it because they're a mean dog, a vicious dog? Probably it's because they're a scared dog. Now, I'm not saying there aren't some genuinely angry people in the world, but a lot of times people are angry because people are afraid. And why are they afraid? They're afraid because that ultimately... They're still laboring in a role, in a realm, in a place that they were not designed to be. I know you say you want the job of being God, but you're not wired for the job of being God. Because you don't know what he does and you can't do what he does. And so we turn into anxious, angry messes when we try and control our world. When things don't work out the way we think they should, we grow impatient and we grow rageful. And we destroy relationships, don't we? Well, then there's this third category that shows up in the way of the fool. Because it's when those brooding if-onlys take over, right? You know the if-onlys. If only this, if only that, if only this had gone this way, if only that had gone that way. When those if-onlys lodge deep in our heart and turn into anger, a third type of thing shows up. Verse 10, say not. Why were the former days 
better than these. Now, I have a, I've, I've come to a realization in my own, uh, in my own life recently of uh, the type of music that I'm gravitating towards and listening to on a regular basis. I personally think that there was a, um, there was a golden age of music in the 90s. You cannot all leave now. There's no walkouts. Not 1890. What was it like then? I'm just... (laughs) Folly. (laughs) Uh, He's not a mean dog, he's a scared dog. (laughs) (laughs) what was I saying again (laughs) oh the 90s right yes thank you okay some folly yes okay good this will go on forever now um I've realized that uh I I have now begun saying wait for it I don't understand the music these kids are listening to these days Really, that entire setup was just so I could say that, okay? Just, there's nothing new under the sun, get it? Okay. Um, we all have that sense of, that, that sense of nostalgia, right? There's nothing, uh, there's nothing wrong with, there's nothing wrong with, um, appraising the um, opportunities and the struggles of a present age. Here's where, the, the, here's where Kohela says this is foolishness. The foolishness comes in when you presume to be able to say that this day and age is broken and that day and age was better. Okay? That's where he says this is foolishness. First of all, you don't know. You don't know what the opportunities of this day and age are going to bring. You don't know what you don't know. And so then he says, so resist the idea of going to a place where you check out of present day and go to some idealistic future that doesn't exist or some idealistic past that doesn't exist either. And look, I'm not going to make a, I'm not going to, I'm just going to, you know, you know right now in our present day and age that much is being made of playing on people's emotions to, to ratchet up the idea that something is lost and must be recovered again. That the days gone by are better than the days now. Okay? This is foolishness. The day that we have now is the day the Lord has made. We do not know what the opportunities of this day in which we have been called to live are. To live in a place where we are constantly wishing to go backwards or forwards is foolishness. 
That is not to say that we should not evaluate the stresses and blessings of our present day. It's not saying that. Saying that when you then go to a place where if only we could make real music, So how do you know you're living in folly? Well, if you just look at these uh, three verses here, Ecclesiastes gives you three clues. You are impatient with God's plans and purposes, both in your life and in the lives of people around you. Or you're a rage-filled individual. And by rage-filled, I don't mean that it shows outwardly. You're a rage-filled individual who's always trying to escape either into a nostalgic past or an idealistic future without living and dealing with life in the present. Because like I said at the beginning, all of these things, all these things are things that we do to try and control the world in which we live, a world that's lost its key, and we're trying to get the key back. We're trying to feel safe and secure because we are like me who moved into my home and didn't know how many other people had the key. And that feeling of unrest and that feeling of unsettlement is what we are trying to deal with, and these are three unhealthy ways that we do that. Now, like I said, Ecclesiastes um, is not able to necessarily offer us the fullest, greatest picture, but it gets down the road. The Bible always says that there are two ways of living. One is folly and one is wisdom. I want you to hear this. Look at what it says in verse 11. Okay? I want to look at the, the limits, the limits of wisdom under the sun. The limits of wisdom under the sun, okay? So what do I mean by under the sun? I mean by uh, simply it's just when we try and be wise, okay? Say not, I said that's verse 10, verse 11. Um, wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. What's he saying there? Okay, so with wisdom, you are able to navigate through the complexities of life, the difficulties of life, because you have life experience, right? You've experienced certain things. Was in that weird position on Friday night after Presbytery. One of our uh, young ministers in our Presbytery was uh, talking to me and a group of other guys about some frustrations that he was having in his church and wondering if doing X, Y, or Z would uh, affect any sort of meaningful dialogue uh, to move the problems forward. And I and another uh, minister both looked at him and basically just said, been there, tried it, have the scars to tell you it doesn't work. When he talks about wisdom being like wealth, he's talking about you can accumulate money, you can accumulate wealth, you can accumulate wisdom. It can be a good thing for you. It can be a good thing for you. It can help you navigate the world. It can help you understand the world. It can help you make sense of the world. But then he throws some caveats at you, right? He throws some caveats in you. 
at you. What he says in verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Okay. So, I want you to remember your days of either uh, participating in or doing some sort of craft. Let's say it's your child. Let's say your child brings you a pipe cleaner. The pipe cleaner has been configured in a way that is not how it came out of the package. It is no longer straight. It is um, creative. Child says to you, can you straighten this, please? I'm fairly sure that when Dante wrote the Divine Comedy and talked about his Inferno, somewhere on the circles of hell is someone sitting there trying to straighten out a child's pipe cleaner to the child's specifications. Or try and take rebar that's been bent. And with your hands, make it straight again. It doesn't. And Kohelis is saying that of the things that are wrong in the world, of the things that are going on in the world, of the things that are messed up in the world, you can't make straight what God has made crooked. You can't fix a world that you didn't break. You can't control what's not yours to control. And then one more caveat he throws at you. Verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. That sounds good. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. See, here's the thing. You can have all the wisdom. You can have all the faith. You can have everything else. If, if this view of God, right, if just, okay, we're going to do better, we're going to try harder, we're going to be wise, we're going to reject folly, we're going to be kind, darn it. If that's your worldview, if this is... If this is um, if this is your worldview, okay, and then this becomes your logical conclusion about God, right? If God is all-powerful, if God is all-knowing, if God is all-present, he's just cold and distant. He's cold and distant. Do you know, friends, listen, when I've sat down and counseled people before that are, that are struggling with sin, and I say, okay, describe God for me. And they say, well, I think he's, you know, I think God is a, you know, he's, he's big. Um, he's a uh, creator. Um, he's all powerful. 
Um, he's all-knowing. Um, he's kind of distant. He's just kind of out there. Um, I think he wants me to quit sinning so much. And I listen to, I listen to them describe their picture of, of God to me. And it sounds a lot like what we see here in Ecclesiastes. And do you know what they've described? Um, they've actually described um, Santa, but the mean version. The one who sees you when you're sleeping and knows when you're awake and you better be good, darn it. I'm like, well, no wonder you can't get any victory over your sin. Your God sounds awful. I wouldn't want to worship him either. When you just resign yourself to, this is the world, it's the world is the way it is, and God's just kind of out there and mean and aloof and distant, do you know what it is? Do you know what that does? That great, that gives you a picture of God, that makes you the person that Jesus described in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, you become the older brother. You become the religious one, the dutiful one, the obedient one, the one who's doing everything, but at some point you're going to snap because life isn't going the way you think it should go. And at some point you're going to tell somebody, God, it's not fair. Why did you bring bad days? Right? That's why we need another, we need another component. We need hope. We need the hope that comes from understanding that God did send redemption in his, into his world. He is not aloof or distant or disconnected. Um, in the documentary Waiting for Superman, um, a documentary about public education in the United States, um, it begins with these words from the educator Jeffrey Canada who says this. He says, one of the saddest days of my life was when my mother told me that Superman didn't exist. He said, I was a comic book reader. And I just love Superman because even in the depths of the ghetto, you just thought he's coming. And I don't know when because he always shows up and he saves all the good people. He says, I was reading, I don't know, maybe I was in fourth grade. I said, Ma, do you think Superman is real? Superman is not real, my mom said. I was like, he's not? What, what do you mean he's not? No, he's not real. And she thought I was crying because it's like saying other, other people in our life are maybe made up things. He said, I was crying because there was no one coming with enough power to save us. That's all that the end of Ecclesiastes can offer you. Fear God, live your life. Hope that it works out at the end. But do you know who God is truly? Do you know? Do you know who God is? Do you know the character of God? Before God was creator and before God was, um, before God was, was lawgiver and before God was prophet sender and before God was uh, temple builder, do you know who God was? 
God was the eternal Father in communion with the Son by the power of the Spirit. If you want to know who God is before all of this was, that's who God is. And his redemption of his people is not his plan B or his plan C. His love for you is not because he had to, it's because he wanted to. And God saw the things that were crooked in the world and he made them straight. How? By sending Jesus. God saw all the crooked things and the adversity-filled days and the tears and the longing of his people. And he sent his son Jesus to rescue them and redeem them and restore them and resurrect them. Beloved, you and I don't need principles alone to a better life. We need the life of Jesus to make us new people. We're not left to wonder about who God really is like. We aren't left to shrug when the good old days and the bad days come and hope that our aloof God knows what he's doing. God isn't aloof, he's alive, he's not conniving, he's cultivating a new world. In Fedor Dostoevsky's seminal work, The Brothers Karmasov, listen to what the brother Ivan says. He says, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. Something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that's happened. Dear friends, The only way that you can live in a house where you don't have the key and you can't lock the door is you have to trust who's on the other side of the door. Right? That in leaving the door unlocked and in surrendering that you're safe. And you can only do that if you believe who God is, that he says he is. That he's for you and not against you. That he's good and he's wise and he's sovereign and he's controlling all things. He's ordering all things for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose in Christ Jesus then you can let your defenses down. Then you can sleep with the doors unlocked. Then you can sleep with the windows open. You don't have to become impatient because you know God is working all things for good. And you don't have to become angry because you know that God is working all things for good. And you don't have to become wistful about a day gone by because you know that God is working all things for good. Amen? Amen.